Welcome to NetSmart Care Threads, a podcast where human services and post-acute leaders across the healthcare continuum come together to discuss industry trends, challenges, and opportunities. Listen as we uncover real stories about how to innovate and improve the quality of care for the communities we serve. Let's get into the show. Welcome to today's show. My name is Tom Herzog, Chief Operating Officer here at NetSmart. It is my pleasure to introduce our guest today, Dr. Ron Manderscheid, a national expert on mental health and substance use treatment, policy, practices, issues, and trends. Dr. Manderscheid has also served in senior leadership roles at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. For the past 11 years, he has brought a voice of County Behavioral Health and IDD providers to Congress as Executive Director of the National Association of County Behavioral Health and Development Disability Directors. Welcome to our conversation today. Thank you so much for joining us and taking the time. I'm really looking forward to some of the things that we're talking about. And I guess I'll jump right in with that context. You know, this last year, we've learned a lot and probably unlearning some things as well. And in many ways, it's become an accelerant for the things that we need to be doing. A good example is telehealth. I think you and I both know those were neat ideas and concepts. We didn't see a lot of adoption. And then overnight, telehealth became the thing that we're focused on. So I'd like to really begin today with your thoughts, your thinking, the things that you're dreaming about or you challenge us with as we look towards the future. Okay, yes, thank you very much, Tom, for inviting me. I always look forward to working with NetSmart and uh, enjoy doing these things. So let me also set the context a little bit in 2020. So 2020 changed our world in behavioral health. Not only did it change it in terms of services, it changed it in terms of epidemiology. We went from about 20% of the population with behavioral health conditions to 40% of the population with behavioral health conditions. The translation of that is we moved from being able to serve about 50% of those people to about 25% of those people. So. We have a huge agenda going forward here of how we expand our capacity to serve more people in an era where the number of people who need services has increased dramatically. You mentioned virtual care. It's absolutely correct. In April of 2020, we went at, from the beginning of the month where everything was interpersonal to the end of the month where everything was virtual. In a normal sequence of time, that probably would have taken five years to accomplish. Because of the press of the emergency and the press financially on organizations, it was accomplished literally overnight. And we've learned a lot about that. We've learned for many people, virtual care is to be preferred actually over interpersonal care. Let me say that again. Virtual care is preferred over interpersonal care you think about that and say, well, why is that the case? It's the case because I think virtual care equalizes the provider and the client in a way that's not true when the client has to go to the provider's office. For some people, however, we need to learn more. Some of our very serious population, uh, people with schizophrenia, people with bipolar disorder, don't always do as well under virtual care. So we have to learn how to combine and create integration between interpersonal care and support and virtual care for those populations. So 
2020 was a very difficult year, but it was also a very exciting year in terms of virtuality, basically. So let, I'm going to ask you a question on, on that right there and just and jump right in. So when you talk about that being preferred, do you think that's just a moment or is that here to stay? I think it's here to stay. And in my organization and others in D.C., we are working very hard to make permanent the financial changes that were permitted as part of the emergency through Medicaid, through Medicare, and also through private insurance. And I think very much there's very much support for that in the current Biden-Harris administration. I believe that will happen, actually. Makes very good, perfect sense. So that obviously, and you've already hit on it, we go from a 20% to a 40% demand out there. And we were meeting maybe 50% of that before. And now that's reduced to 25% because of the capacity. How do we address capacity? Well, I think, you know, that's part of the agenda for the future I'd like to spend a little time talking about. I think we have to change our training practices. We could have a very long conversation about that simply in terms of the number of people we are producing through our university programs need to be increased. But also we need to change the strategy of education. Not all education needs to be interpersonal. Some of education can be virtual. For example, I teach at graduate students, doctoral students at the University of Southern California. All of my teaching through an entire course with those people is virtual. Their education is virtual, which allows me then to have a classroom of people throughout the United States that I could convene tonight at eight o'clock and work with. So if I modernize the educational process somewhat and we train more people and we add virtuality to that, I think we can make a huge difference. We also need to enfranchise some of our providers who aren't currently enfranchised. For example, mental health counselors, marriage and family, family therapists, some social workers are not enfranchised to be paid as independent practitioners. We're working very hard in advocacy to change that, to enroll them. We're also trying to bring on more peer supporters who can help us deliver support and care virtually in all quarters of our system, whether it be in community facilities or hospitals or even for those people who are in jail. So training is a huge issue going forward and must be on the agenda of behavioral health in 2021. So when you think, when we talk about training, you're talking about different modalities of training that we need to make it more accessible. How do we continue to ensure the quality of that training? That's been a big conversation point that while you can do things virtual, there are some things that are missed. And specifically um, in those areas around behavioral health, the interpersonal and the communication becomes a fundamental to our ability to absorb and learn. How do you do that in a virtual setting? So to, to give, give you an example of that, remember I mentioned the possibility of hybrid type treatment where you combine virtual treatment with interpersonal treatment. Well, the same thing is true of training and education. For example, one of my students at the uh, University of California at San Diego actually is doing projects where they're doing joint training of psychiatrists and primary care physicians. So this is 
not classroom training. This is actually practice training in the community where they learn how to work together. And we don't do much of that in behavioral health. So that's no. novel, learning how to work together with providers who aren't behavioral health providers. We can do the same thing with what you're talking about. So a person needs the conceptual training on treatment. They also need the practice training on treatment of actually working with a client, learning how to communicate, learning the nonverbal cues and so on. We can combine this and make it work. Another example of quick jumping ahead is education moving rapidly in 2020 from interpersonal education to virtual education. The whole system went virtual at every level. And we've learned where, where has it worked well, where has it worked less well, and how can we improve that, basically? Well, I, I got to pick up on that because um, I've been in healthcare for over 20 years uh, now on um, the healthcare IT side, and integrated care has been this, this pursuit, this goal that we've all had. And contextually, how do you make that relevant for anyone? You've just taken that to another whole level, though, because it's not about a systems approach. That training piece where you have medical model or primary caregivers and behavioral health caregivers studying and working together, that really is getting ahead of the curve and making it more of a standard practice than trying to figure out how to do that in an existing environment. Can you expand on that, Any? So, so yes. Yeah. So, again, working with some students, we first have learned that we can create integrated care virtually, and that has been a huge boon. We had difficulty moving into integrated care after 2010 in the Affordable Care Act because we said, well, you have to completely change your organization and how you do business and everything else. We've learned with virtuality, you don't need to do that. For example, one of my students in Boston, actually at Mass General, has set up a system where mass general psychiatrists work with primary care physicians in rural Western Massachusetts, all done virtually. So the client comes in, the client can work with both of those providers simultaneously in the primary care office in rural Massachusetts and have access to very good psychiatric care. So that's the, the service side of this. Training side of this, it's the same thing. You know, we can actually see a client virtually and we can practice with a client virtually. If we had a third person here, one of us could be the client. The other two of us could be providers. We could be working virtually and we could have a fourth person here, an instructor who could be watching this interaction and say, well, you know, Ron Manders didn't do very well in that interaction and so on. You know, he didn't pay attention to Tom's nonverbal cues, basically. So this is not impossible. We just have to start thinking about doing this in a different way. And I'm going to call it a more modern way than we have done some of these things in the past. So I'm looking forward to turning the page on some of these things and moving the agenda. Well, I think in some ways this disruption has opened doors to us that have largely been barriers because that's the way it's always been done. And it's forcing us to do a rethink on it. So I think on that, let's continue down this future thought. And we talk about normal, what is not normal. And I'm one of the people who believe that we are shaping what the new normal will be. I don't think we're in that now. 
I don't think we're going to go back to everything that was. So as you look forward and you've got great context and lens at a national level, at an education level and at a provider level, and you've already mentioned the first one around training, what are the other things that we need to be thinking about? So you, we've already mentioned two. One, we've mentioned training. Second one is integrated care, which I think now is beginning to blossom and move ahead in a very effective way. We can talk more about that if you like. But I think there are at least two other things that we need to have on our agenda in 2021. One is the whole issue of building consensus in the field about where the field is going. And I'm speaking particularly about the chasm we have between a whole set of people in our field who believe community care is very important and everything should be community care. And on the other hand, a set of people who believe that uh, care in institutional settings is absolutely critical and we have to have that. We need to be building the center in here. These two groups should be working together. There are important points on both sides of that discussion which we don't hear if we don't bring those pieces together. Bringing those pieces together can also help us be more effective in our advocacy for all aspects of the field. Advocacy at the federal level, advocacy so SAMHSA gets more money than it's had historically, advocacy for HRSA, so HRSA has training money for behavioral health, which it hasn't had much of historically. A CDC and the work that CDC does on uh, depression and suicide and so on. Huge opportunity here if we can work together toward the center of the field a little more and still respect the whole recovery movement, respect peers, respect consumers and so on. I believe we, we can do that and need to do that. One other thing I want to mention, which I think is very important going forward, is the whole movement that we have to pay attention to assessing the effects of what we do, and that we actually measure outcomes that occur as a result of care and measure them in a way that is practical, straightforward, useful to our providers, to counties, to states, and so on which we have not done very well historically. And I believe companies like NetSmart and others are gonna play a huge role going forward in the future of doing that in a very practical way. For example, I'm just starting a pilot in my own organization to run outcome and performance assessments in four of our state associations. The goal is to have the counties in the state work together the counties report to the state association, then the state association reports the county and state association data nationally and so on, building a hierarchical system, but building it on the basis of consensus, not me coming with a briefcase right. saying, you know, these are the measures you absolutely have to have. I learned in the, when I was in the federal government, top-down data systems don't work. Consensus-built data systems work very well and they last much longer. So in this pilot, I'm trying to build this consensus on what types of measures we ought to share among all the counties and states participating in the pilot, what measures we don't need to share, and what measures we might share among some of the entities, depending upon the particular work they're doing. And uh, I'm looking forward to that because we have not, as counties, really done as much as we should be doing in the outcome and assessment area. Why is it so important? 
It's absolutely critical because of the movement toward value-based purchasing, which is upon us. And if you look outside behavioral health, healthcare actually has moved ahead more rapidly than behavioral health in adopting value-based purchasing. It is going to be upon us in order to do value-based purchasing, we have to be able to put reasonable outcome measures on the table for our providers here. So very, very important work that needs to be done in 2021 again. Well, I feel part of this, I we can almost do a four-part podcast here uh, on these topics because there's so much to discuss. So you mentioned training. So we, we covered that a little bit. We talked a little bit about integrated care. Your your last two there, I want to hit on, and I'm gonna I'm gonna maybe take a different approach to it. You you talked about the need to build consensus, or I'll use another word around collaboration, but then also talk about what the effects are or the measurements are. And when I look at those two uniquely, the barriers there are finding common ground, and and there is so much diverse opinion on getting consensus. And I'll say the dreaded word at times around some type of standards or at least implied standards, because one of the big jokes in, in our world or kind of things that we all kind of mock is if you've seen one system, you've seen one system, because we have a tendency to want to configure to some of our very uniqueness, whether it's local, state, regional, or around some different thinking. And then the other ones are, is it green on what those outcomes should be? I've got to tell you, in a day and age where we have a hard time finding agreement on much, how can what can we do? What can I do? Or how would you challenge us for how we really get to roll up your sleeves co- co- collaboration to find common ground on these two topics? Well, I, I think, you know, so when I was a Fed many years ago, a lot of the work I did was finding consensus among different groups on data issues, Good example would be finding consensus among all the disciplines in behavioral health upon what measures we should be using for our human resources. I spent 20 years as a Fed actually working on that, and there's a certain culture you develop of doing that kind of work. You have to first build confidence of the people you're working with that you're not there to take advantage of them, hoodwink them, any of that. You have to be a credible, balanced, unbiased observer of that process. Then you have to build support from them, and then you have to start on a small scale and build outward. I think, you know, we're talking about behavioral health, but if I step back for a second, I think part of the huge agenda in the United States currently and going forward will be how do we find the center for things? It isn't just measures or it it isn't just training or whatever. It's about almost everything. So how do we build a culture that builds out the center? And I think there are good examples in the field. I think Tyler Norris, for example, at the Wellbeing Trust is one of the people and his entity is one of the entities that's trying to build out the center in the field and say, well, no, we all can agree that well-being and the well-being of you, your family members, me, our community is a good thing. If we can agree on that, then then we need to start talking about, well, how do we accomplish that? And we get some agreement on, is to find some center and you build out from that to try to actually make this happen. So I think Tyler is a good example of that in the field. 
I'm also uh, doing some work with a little consulting firm right now where we're thinking through how we would do consulting with, with anybody. It could be with you. It could be with me. It could be with uh, a state. How do we actually find that center and begin building out from that center? Because I guess we in this little consulting activity see that as the huge problem of the age in the United States and that it pervades every single field. And our disparity between community care and institutional care is a good example of that in behavioral health. Or it could be another dimension of that in behavioral health might be between different disciplines and how different disciplines approach treatment or how different disciplines get financed versus not financed and so on. So there are a number of these areas in behavioral health where we need to be building that center. So what I hear is, and I've not heard it phrased this way, I agree, we got to figure out how to common ground is ultimately found at the center, respect the perspectives that people bring to the table around those things, a novel idea, listen, so do a lot of listening in the process, <laughs> learning together and sharing those perspectives. I think sometimes we find ourselves in such a position, I know technologists can be um, very guilty of this, is where you have an absolute mindset or something that this is the way, way it, it has always been or this is the way it needs to be, is to really pause and be willing to unlearn those things so that we can arrive or shift into a new paradigm is what, I, what, what I'm hearing you say. And in a very unique way, if there's good to come from the challenge of this past year, it's opened the door that we've got to get here because our future is dependent upon it and what we need to be doing. Yes, absolutely. And not only the future of behavioral health care, but the future of the IT industry, all of this is at stake in what we're talking about here. So I think I'm going to get to a couple other questions here, but I do want to recap on these four things that you just said to make sure that we all uh, grasp them. Uh, and I'm taking notes here. The first one, because you, you you talked about the challenges or the opportunities and, and specifically around capacity. And I think in the goodness is we're all, and I'll talk specifically to mental health at this time, is we're more aware of it now because we've seen the challenge yes. of it in at all ages of life and that the pandemic specifically or the other challenges of 2020 is really brought this sense of understanding and managing our well-being and moving beyond just the windshield of physical health, if you will. And the way that we need to address that capacity is training at all levels. And that led to that, to the part of the conversation around integrated care is going to become more of a reality because of how we pursue care. That yeah. when I go seek out care, I'm going to look at those things and seek both of them at the same time. And then getting the third thing that you mentioned is we've got to be outcomes based. What is the measurement and the results around those and be willing, I think, to have the freedom to talk about what's working but also what's not working. I think that's part of that challenge of finding consensus or common ground. And, and that was the other one that, that, that you mentioned is it's going to take a unique collaboration, probably in a very tumultuous time for us to be willing to get to that center to rethink some of these things. So I think on those four things, I'm going to ask you a past question and a future question. I'll start with the past. Future is always good. I think when people get nervous, is we're going to forget what got us here. 
And what are some of the things that you would say that in this pursuit to reshape, relearn, or evolve ourselves forward that we should not forget as we take these next steps? Oh, I, I think, you know, absolutely. I thank you for asking that, because I think you're asking, again, a very, very important question. And if I were to answer that just off my top of my head, the type of thing that comes to my mind is we absolutely should not forget that what the goal here is, is recovery and well-being of those people we serve. And that they, number two, that they play a huge role in achieving that recovery and well-being, just as the provider does, just as the county does, and so on, just as the state does and the federal government. And we need to respect that and keep focused on that. Uh, it's very easy for recovery to go out of focus when you're dealing with an acute behavioral problem of a person who has a very severe disorder. But if you step back and say, well, you know, that person... Uh, under another circumstance would be very different and has huge potential here, has huge potential that we can help realize and bring about. So the vision, keeping the vision in mind of where we're trying to go. And I think secondly, that vision relates to outcomes. You know, you've talked about different kinds of measures of outcomes. I personally believe uh, where we're going in the longer run on outcomes is toward well-being and the dimensions of well-being as our fundamental outcomes for health and for behavioral health. And in fact, in my pilot, I would like to test some well-being measures as opposed to some of the more traditional measures, we'll look at some of those as well, but in addition to some of the more traditional measures to actually see whether we can make a go of, of well-being measures, because I believe they're a huge part of the future here. And I guess the thirdly, linking this together, that we have to be able to do these things both interpersonally and we have to be able to do them virtually. And, and we have to get the virtuality and the interpersonal to work together. We were able to do one or the other. Now we got to get them, you know, the hybrid car is a good example. It can run on gas or it can run on a battery. We got to get our care to run on gas here, virtuality, or on a battery, you know, interpersonally. So we can do that. We can make that happen. So I think the vision here, we've got to keep the vision in mind and not get tunnel vision where we lose sight of what we're really trying to do here. And it's a noble goal. That goal, one, two, and three, those goals, one, two, and three, are part of social justice. How do you reduce disparities and promote equity in the population, particularly for people who have behavioral health conditions? A huge, huge agenda for all of us. Yeah, I think um, very well said. And I think, you know, in your pursuit and challenge to us to find common ground or consensus, we can all agree on well-being is a community that has uh, is healthy and thriving is one that understands well-being and the pursuit of it. 
that is inclusive. There's a great inclusivity, equality, and equity within it. And those really need to be a compass for us in that pursuit. And that's the part I think of the, as we look back, we got to continue to carry forward. And I guess I'll segue that into my next question. As you look forward and you look at the technologies or the opportunities that are going to be presented to us, here we are talking about We know that a a rover has landed on Mars, and not only did a rover land on Mars, but then it had a helicopter take off a drone to go circle Mars. And the wave of innovation and technology that is coming is absolutely amazing. And I, I know you have a lot of thoughts on this and would love to hear, as you look forward, if our mean is defined by what we're willing to let go of, but also by what we're willing to grab a hold of, what are the things that you're thinking about that you're pretty excited? Well, there's there's a whole number, and hopefully we have time to talk about a few of them here. So I think first, kind of where we are today, there is a lot of excitement about better use of good apps that are evidence-based in the delivery of care. For example, the Food and Drug Administration now will certify apps. If the FDA certifies an app as an evidence-based practice, it can be billed for. That is a huge transition in care that we're just on the cusp of beginning. And in these various apps, we're in the stage of research where we're saying, well, if I have 30 apps here, how do I match these 30 apps to 300 people who need care? I.e., which app belongs with which person and will function more effectively for that person. So we have to get into some, and we are getting into some predictive analytics work to actually make that happen. So current era of activity. Kind of a next era of activity that I think is very exciting is the whole issue of the use of artificial intelligence as a support to a provider. So. Not every provider will know of every med or of every particular treatment. However, if I have an artificial intelligence system working with that provider, that artificial intelligence system can actually help the provider come more quickly to an appropriate med, come more quickly to an appropriate intervention, and then actually in fact, shadow the provider as the provider delivers care to make this happen. We have an interpersonal example of this right now. The interpersonal example of this type of thing is the ecosystem at the University of New Mexico. So if if I'm a provider and I'm having a difficult client with depression that I don't know what to do with, I can work with the ecosystem and I will be put into a group with other providers who uh, have that particular problem. And the person leading the process from the University of New Mexico will work us through the difficulty. I'm using a person there. I could just as easily be using an artificial intelligence system and we will be doing that. I would predict within five years, we're going to have primitive systems that do that. And going forward 10 to 15 years, we're going to have much more advanced systems that do that. So that's kind of a second example. A third example is 
it's overly simplified to call it this, but to call it a biofeedback system. For example, I can right now wear a smartwatch that will monitor my blood pressure. It will tell me what my heart rate is. It will also tell me what my galvanic skin response is. So if I'm getting stressed, my galvanic skin response changes. So I, I can pick up a number of biomarkers simply by wearing a smartwatch. If I link that smartwatch to a system that monitors, well, you know, Ron Manderscheid's biomarkers are getting, you know, his heart rate is going up, his galvanic skin response has changed. Something's going on with Ron Manderscheid this afternoon at four o'clock. Then I can intervene, I can either have an interpersonal intervention with Ron Manders. Someone calls me and say, well, what's going on this afternoon? Yeah. Or I can have a artificial intelligence intervention. I could receive a message and say, have a message appear on my computer. You know, you seem to be having some difficulty this afternoon. So mixing biomarkers with artificial intelligence systems and with providers, I think, has, again, huge, huge possibilities. And in the, in the limit, some more extreme examples of this, uh, for example, years ago, I did some work with DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, when I worked in the private sector. Already 15 years ago, DARPA had the capacity of having people wear helmets and fly an airplane or drive a truck or run a ship without ever touching the ship or the airplane or the truck. Now, with that, take that capacity, that's externally acting on the environment, take the helmet and make it internal. Potentially, we could use that kind of technology to be self-corrective of people who are developing mental health symptoms, symptoms of schizophrenia, for example. I, we, just, we just are not far enough along. So there are many wonderful dimensions of this that are going to come along. Again, companies like uh, NetSmart, in the future, 10 or 15 years from now, are going to be playing in, in this world. So in addition yes. to, you know, collecting data and processing data on services and on payments and so on, you will be playing some kind of a role, a parallel role in this artificial intelligence world where you will be an anchor for this. You'll be supporting this. You'll be measuring this. You, you're going to be playing in this world. So your world is going to change dramatically as well. And this, the whole area of artificial intelligence is accelerating right now. I have more and more students who do work in that area. Yeah. And I'm seeing much more literature about that. For example, I probably have seen half a dozen articles just in the last week or so on artificial intelligence and its application in the healthcare field. We're, yeah. we're going there, basically. Well, I think it's, I mean, you, you sit here and you share and express all this. And I think for many of us, this is what it's been all about. I mean, if we're candid, the last many years has been about the digitization of a system, capturing data, if you will. And if we're candid, we're transparent and honest about it. It hasn't always been the best experience for that end user, specifically the clinician, because it's always been about what can the clinician do for the system rather than what can the system do for the clinician? Yes, exactly. And, exactly. and what I'm most excited about is we're now shifting into that next era. Now that we've laid this digitization groundwork, 
The things that you're talking about are no longer dreams. They've become reality. Some of the things that we're doing with AI right now is mind blowing. I, I'm so excited around getting to the practical applications of those things because it's going to empower and equip whether it's a clinician, someone in an operational or financial role to say, have you considered these possibilities not to take decision-making away? I think sometimes that gets lost in the translation, but it's to be able to compile all that information in a, in a contextual relevant way so that as a clinician's meeting with someone like me and saying everything that you just talked about, hey, Tom, based on your biomarkers and based on these kind of patterns, we gave you a call because we're concerned. And we're, I think for the, in my kids and the generations behind us, we're going to move away from this episodic era that we only arrived to a place when we had a crisis to a preventative era to say, hey, we've got enough data. I know, thumbs up. I am with you. And, and that, that turn is right in front of us. But in saying that, doctor, I know there's a lot of people out there that's nervous. That's a significant amount of change. What role do I play? Can I play? So I guess for my last question here, how would you encourage that person who's listening to you right now saying, you know what, that sounds really excited, but I it makes me anxious around those things. How would you challenge or coach us to press into these things rather than see them as, you know what, it, it may be too much change for me and I don't know what role I have in it. So I think, you know, you put your finger on it in your last comment. It's very important for the person to know what role they have in it. For example, when I was doing work on integrated care shortly after the Affordable Care Act, and I would go out and give talks about integrated care, I learned very quickly, I couldn't talk about integrated care until I could reassure people, number one, you know, your position is not going to disappear. <laughs> you know, you're going to have a job in the future in behavioral health. Your organization isn't going to disappear. It may change its name or it may be integrated or something, but it's still going to be there in some form. If you don't assure people of their role in something, then they won't hear anything else you have to say. So it's very, very important when you start these things that it's very clear that you explain what role that person is going to have in this change. It's, it's, again, building from the center, building a consensus with the person, not coming and telling them that you're going to be doing something here. So I think, again, you know, to go to your point, it's, it's, uh, there's a huge opportunity of doing that and moving ahead fairly quickly. And I think as we get change in our field, the baby boomers retire, more millennials come into the field, people that are the age of your son who's 17, who within you know five or six years could be in the field. Your son who's 17 is an avid user of technology. He's not scared of technology. He knows what his role is in technology. You're gonna get more and more people who have that experience. So I think there are gonna be less people who are fearful of technology and more who actually understand the positive impact that technology can have on disparities and equity. For example, the, one of the huge benefits of the internet is it equalizes people. Yeah. On the internet, 
I'm equal to the president of the United States because we both can, I can send an email to the president of the United States or the president of the United States can send an, so to me, the internet equalizes. Technology also equalizes and we need to bring people along. And as you say, they need to understand what their role is in the process. And I think that that's doable, just as we talked about training earlier, it's doable. Well, in many ways, and, and why I know we don't have time to dive into this topic is you're speaking to the social determinants of health, education, access, technology. Um, and really, I, I think that's, I, I think the word needs to change. It's no, it will no longer be social determinants of health because that's almost a, retrospective look, it needs to be social determinants of care. And what can we do to bring those equalizers that impact our health everywhere? So let's land on this thought. Conversation, this is great. You've given us a lot here. I've got two pages of notes now. And I guess I would ask you is, as we begin looking forward, we probably come off the one of the hardest years most people have ever experienced. And we've all learned some things over the last year about ourselves. I know introspectively, I've, it's been a good time to um, soften maybe some harder edges in my own life, become better, pursue better. What things have you learned or you would encourage or challenge us as we go forward? So, you know, I probably have had very similar experiences to you of learning things. You know, I give, give an example of that. I've learned that, you know, if I walk down my street, and I look at things, I can see a tree or a flower or a little dog or whatever, a neighbor that I never did before. I drove in, parked my car in the garage, and it's caused me to be much more open to the environment and things around me because my whole environment became smaller. My environment used to be like the United States. I was yeah. in, now my environment is much more my neighborhood, the office I'm sitting in right now, my house, my family, and so on. So I think we've learned to have greater appreciation of the reality right around us that we kind of lost in this broader world where we were everywhere, but in effect, not really anywhere as strongly and having an emotional connection to that environment. So I think that's been a huge learning that I've had, my wife has had, and I think a lot of people have had that. Another a basic point is to appreciate <laughs> the very simple things. A very, you know, we I, we used to take for granted, think nothing of going out to dinner on a Friday night. Well, oh, yeah. we haven't done that. That that's just the mo the most fundamental and simple thing. We haven't done that. Yeah, and greater appreciation for those simple things that we took too much for granted before. And I guess the third point, my final point, that we've learned that we can be resilient in this process here, that we need to recognize, you know, there are consequences if you quarantine, you know, there are consequences if your children are home from school, working on computers at home, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, and that you need to be somewhat flexible and adaptable and resilient and kind of go with the flow of those changes. You know, you aren't going to have the whole house to yourself. Yeah. If your yeah. children are there, those kind of things. So I think there have been a lot of learnings that are very positive here. 
in this hugely negative environment where now we're beyond 550,000 people dying and now we're in an upswing again and so on and vaccinations we need to improve and get them out there faster and so on. So I think there's a lot of positive in effect behind the negative and uh, we need to see both sides of it. And I think it's healthy to see both sides of it. Yeah. Well, what I, I mean, I, my three takeaways from what you just said, which are absolutely beautiful, be present when you're present. Couldn't agree with you more. And I, you know, I shudder to think of the times that while I may have been in a place, I wasn't really there. The second one is to be grateful. I started a gratitude journal through this process and it has been really good to help me focus uh, my mindset. And your resiliency remark, I couldn't agree more, is adapt and pivot. Some things find us, some we find, we always choose forward and we can get better from them. So doctor, I wanna thank you for today, but I also wanna thank you for your vision your passion, your compassion, and what you do to impact not only providers, but our healthcare systems, but every individual. I know I am personally impacted by your work, and we are grateful for all the things you're doing. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. I hope you will join us again. Uh, I've gotten a lot from this. I know the, I know our audience and listeners will get a lot from this as well, and I'm looking forward to the next time. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much for inviting me. Good luck to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. At NetSmart, we understand the challenges facing provider organizations. Our team will help you navigate changing value-based care models with solutions and services that make person-centered care a reality. We'll equip you with technology and services that provide holistic, real-time views of care histories that inform better decision-making and better outcomes. Visit us today at ntst.com. NetSmart, serving you so you can serve others. Thanks for listening to the NetSmart Care Threads podcast. Through collaboration and conversation, we can work together to make healthcare more connected than ever before and better support the communities we serve. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars that you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.